Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we are in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to pick up one verse before where we left off. So the end of chapter 16, uh, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That was six days ago. Six days have passed. And there are going to be three of them that see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And, and, and there's going to be another revelation. So all of the Bible is this revelation. From, from the fall of Adam and Eve when, when Eve is told that uh, a seed of hers will step on the snake of Satan, there has been a progressive revelation of Jesus Christ. Even into the book of Matthew, we see Jesus as incarnate human, and he takes on human form. He condescends to become a human. He lowers himself into, the, it'd be less, like us lowering our, actually not like us, far worse than us lowering ourselves to become an ant and live in an ant farm. For God to go in his majesty, to come down into the form of a human, uh, is absolutely reducing himself. And they haven't even got... So the miracle here isn't the transfiguration, which comes in the first few years. The miracle is that God has concealed himself for this long with this many people and not fully revealed his glory. And I think even in the transfiguration, his glory is not fully revealed, uh, because in the face of his glory, the Israelites begged Moses to be an intercessor for them because they couldn't stand being in the presence of God because his majesty is so great and powerful and mighty. So Jesus promises them that some are going to see him. This is not a symbolic sentence. People read this as well. Well, that's at the end of days. And, you know, I, I, when we do the word of God, I read it for what it says. And, and I don't think Jesus was dumb, and I don't think he misunderstood his own words. And when he says, there are some standing here, which means the literal disciples in his presence who are actually standing, who shall not taste death. And we all know what death means, and all of the disciples have since died. So this, I don't think, is a reference to the second coming or anything like that. But the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom is this revelation that's about to happen. So then we get to chapter 17, and it happens. It's sequentially, Matthew does connect these thoughts. Now after six days, six days after what? After Jesus said this thing. So he fulfills it within that amount of time. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and they led him up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with them. Now, artists often render this as kind of where you get the halo around somebody or that kind of blazing light. And this image has been you know, made into art many times. We've already seen God reveal the plan in that the tares are going to grow up for the wheat. In chapter 16, he asked the disciples the question, who do you say that I am, before he reveals himself in this kind of way. And the answer in verse 16 of the last chapter was, you're the Messiah. Then 
Jesus tells him he's going to die and get resurrection, re resurrected. And then Peter jumps in and he's like, no, 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 you got to do it this way. And Jesus basically says, shut up. Actually, it's, cr it's crueler than that. He says, get behind me, Satan, because God just told him the plan. But that plan is not good enough for Peter. Peter's got another plan. Um, and he gets rebuked by Jesus. And then immediately, Jesus wants his disciples to see him and then be righteous. So in verse 18 of the last chapter, he sets up the idea of the church. There's going to be a church, and that's going to be what kind of takes over. So this is the culmination of the entire Old Testament. This is the closing of an era as Jesus has removed his hand from the, from the Mosaic priesthood, and he's going to put his blessing on this church. But to do that, his church actually has to understand who they are, and they have to know where they stand. And the very first lesson they learn is Peter gets told to shut up and get behind Jesus' following. Like, that's the core of the church, is that we follow Jesus. We don't tell Jesus how he's supposed to behave. So you got this intro, this Messiah, the church, death, resurrection, get behind me, you're rebuked. And, 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 it, and it's all going to kind of get reflected now. Like, so there's going to be um, this, this way in which he kind of reinforces all of these lessons from last chapter. Chapter 16 and 17 go together, is what I'm saying. And they hook together. So he's going to gather the wheat. That comes back from Matthew chapter 13, 43. He says, The righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So he's already told them that the righteous people are going to shine. They're literally going to exude light. The kingdom then is like a city on the hill, he's already told them. Another image of the people of God are going to shine and they're going to exude light. So he's showing them a way to live to do that. And then he reveals how it's going to start. But this idea that light is going to shine has been the plan of God since Genesis 1. Verse 3, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and he divided the light from the darkness. It's always been the plan to sort the light from the dark, the wheat from the tares, the ungodly from the godly, the people that God wants in his presence, people he doesn't. When he creates light, the only thing that's in existence to be seen in the light is God himself. So when Jesus shines like this, we're simply seeing the original plan that's not being veiled for our own good. We're, God's, it's, it's more true to God's nature that, he is, that he's seen in light than, than otherwise. So now after six days, I think is another connection. Six days is relevant. And for a Jewish listener, six days is how long it took God to create the earth. And so when Jesus reveals himself in this moment, it's almost like the, the consummation of a work of God after six days. What does God do on the seventh day? He rests. And, and what has been made can now find and see God in the light that he's created. So after Peter, James, and John get rebuked, they get to see God, like well, first of all, this says getting rebuked is not bad. And as humans, especially American humans, we are really sensitive to being rebuked. But a rebuke is an act of love. And when Peter, when Peter gets rebuked by Jesus, it's not because Jesus is rejecting him. It's because he wants Peter to learn and come back into the fold. So Matthew gives no reason why it's Peter, James, and John, but he does has shown Peter to step out into the water when other disciples didn't. But with James and John, we have no idea why it's those two. It's interesting that Matthew's writing this because he's writing something that he had to then have conveyed to him from Peter, James, or John. 
Um, but we do know that of these three people, Peter, James, and John, this accounts for two of the Gospels. Um, well, and with Matthew, this is three. And it, these three guys account for six of the epistles. Like, you're talking about the people that have written a large portion of our New Testament, that have had this revelation. And if you combine these three that see Jesus in this kind of transfigured state and combine it with Paul being blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, you really have most of the New Testament being written by people that have seen Jesus in his transfigured state. So this is after getting rebuked, this happens. So they're on a high mountain. It doesn't say which high mountain they're on. There's no specifics. There's three big mountains in this area. There's Tabor, Hermon, and Miron. I think we're not told because if we were, we would turn that mountain into a giant church and we'd make it into an idol. And just like we've done in Jerusalem, right? It becomes then a source of conflict and that's how humans are. And that's not what's important here. What's important here is the disciples see transfiguration. In the Greek, it's the word metamorpho, which sounds like a Marvel villain. Um, but is the root word for metamorphosis or change. In other words, Jesus doesn't change in his nature, but the material he's made of seems to change. It actually references his clothing and his face shining or giving off light, but his face is still recognizable. So it's not like he changes into a little bubble angel or something. Like they still recognize this as Jesus, but the material that he's made of seems to be different. And this is interesting because we're told that we will be given new bodies when we are resurrected in Christ. So this is kind of like maybe a glimpse of what heaven looks like or what that there will be bodies. We will recognize each other's faces. There will still be clothes. We're not all running around like naked Renaissance paintings, right? And that those clothes will be of a different new material that also emanate light. In fact, we're told we'll get robes and they'll be put upon us. So his face shines like the sun, that's not just a figure of speech. They're saying it was hard to look at. It was so bright. That's the only object that we can think of in our human existence where it actually kind of hurts to look at it, either the sun or a reflection of the sun. His clothes then are bright too. The point is that Jesus becomes physically emanating and more brilliant. Um, and we see this. And we see that the, the three have now seen the Son of Man coming. This is what the Son of Man is going to look like. So they get this great honor. Um, and, 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 and they see it. The point of this, though, isn't that they're done with their ministry. The point is this is just the beginning of their ministry. This is part of how Christ is founding his church, is that these three will see him transfigured, but thousands are going to see him resurrected. And in that, the church is built on the person of Jesus, not on something else, right? With Confucius, we have to learn his sayings and then come to believe them. With Buddha, we have to learn the teachings of Buddha and come to believe him. With Jesus, we first learn the person of Jesus as resurrected Christ, which then makes us want to go read his teachings because the teachings are validated in power and in resurrection. So this isn't a new miracle. We saw at the baptism that there was a light at the baptism and there was a Holy Spirit that descended on him. Um, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1, 4 through 5. He's likely writing that sentence, remembering what Jesus looked at right now. In Jesus was a light that came out from him. So the miracle here is that God has concealed that kind of power and light for as long as he has. And behold, in verse 3, 
Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with them. Again, they recognized Moses and Elijah. Either they had really good artistic renderings or something spiritually told them, this is Moses and that's Elijah. Or they can hear them talking. He appeared to them talking with him. So Moses and Elijah know Jesus and talk with Jesus. And they're probably the three disciples come walking up and there's these three guys hanging out at some level, like, wait, who are these two? And then as they listen to the conversation, they can hear Jesus calling him Moses and calling the other guy Elijah. And they're like, wait a sec, Moses and Elijah? So in some way, shape, or form, they know who they're talking to. And the sentence at the end of verse 3, talking with him, they know who they're talking to because there's actually a conversation going on. So their eyes have adjusted at this point. They, they can, the, the shock of light is not something that keeps us away from the light. It's something we have to adjust to the light. But at this point, they can see it. They can see who's talking. Moses, uh, we think, died 1,400 years ago, but here he is standing here 1,400 years later. There is life after death. There is identity after death. There is a recognizable human being after death. Elijah, 900 years ago. Here he is standing with Jesus at this moment. So you got the chief figure from the delivery of the law, the first revelation of God's will for humanity, and the prophets, the spoken revelation of God's will for humanity. And Jesus, the revelation of the new covenant with God in humanity. So you've got the law, the prophets, and Jesus, who said, I did not come to, uh, uh, to squish the law, I came to fulfill the law. So he's not against Moses, they're actually friends. And think of that image that these that Jewish-minded people would have when Moses and Elijah and Jesus are hanging out. So... Moses, you could say, represents those people that die and go to heaven. Elijah represents those people that are caught up and go to heaven. So you've got two different kinds of people standing with Jesus and hanging out. And they're on equal terms, not with Jesus, but with each other. So it comes to pass, as they went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and a horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, 2 Kings 2.11. Elijah never died. So he's one of the characters in the Old Testament. He never died, but there he is standing with Jesus. Those who are asleep shall be with those that are caught up at the end of time. Um, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, Moses. Then we we that are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, Elijah, to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall ever be with the Lord. They're getting a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. He's revealing himself as to how this is going to be. Now, if that's the case, and Jesus actually wants to talk with us, like that either terrifies you, or that is the most golden prize we could ever seek after, to walk and talk with God in the garden, on the mountain, in the valley, wherever. So we have this idea that those that are past, they still live, they're still with them. Uh, Luke 9 tells the transfiguration, and he tells us a little bit about the conversation. He says that they're talking about the crucifixion. So at the same time Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to be crucified and die and be raised again, he's actually telling Moses and Elijah the same things. All of humanity then comes together in this moment. Um, Here's my other thought, and, and again, I don't know if this is biblical, but I think this is a beautiful thought. Back in Numbers 20... 
the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in their disobedience. And he said, because you did not believe me and hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. That Moses never got to go into the Holy Land. But he said it, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. In the mercy and grace of God, think about where Moses is at right now. He didn't get to go into the Holy Land during his first life, but in his afterlife, God gracefully lets him see the Holy Land. So you got to think that Moses was like looking around going, this is the land I was never able to go into in my life. And I just think that's such a mercy. Um, the, what happened with Moses then can be blessed. And remember what Moses messed up or the, the defiance that he did is the first time he was supposed to strike the rock, allowing living water to pour forth, forth from, the, from the rock, Right. But in the time then Jesus gave, or God gave him a different command that he was supposed to speak to the rock. And in speaking to the rock, there was a change. Like after the law of sin comes this new way of getting living water where all you got to do is ask for it. So the law is something that strikes, it punishes. And then it was supposed to be this beautiful image of once the Messiah is struck, the rock, then the water just pulls out by asking for it. And so Moses screwed up that wonderful image, but even in screwing it up, we wrote it down so we still have the image. But the fact that he kind of mucked that up is part of where God um, had the consequence for him. But we see that Jesus then um, gives him mercy and lets him see the Holy Land. And I just think that's wonderful. It's just a side thought. Um, then Peter answered. and So he answered. That's an honest, like, go back to verses 1 through 3. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared talking with him, with Jesus, and then Peter answered and said, Jesus. So the idea that Peter's answering here is a little, like he wasn't addressed. Nobody asked his opinion. And he comes jumping in with it. And so Peter's going to get what we call the second rebuke. His first rebuke was, get behind me, Satan. In other words, can you just please be back behind me and follow the way I'm leading? And if you can't manage that, then, then I don't need you around. You're just a temptation for me. Um, so get behind me, Satan. But he's about to get his second rebuke. And this rebuke comes directly from the voice of God. Like, knock it off, Peter. So by him jumping in and proposing things, he's really presuming again. And he, he hasn't quite learned. And I honestly, this is one of the toughest things that I think that we have to learn as disciples of Christ, is to get behind Jesus and not keep coming in with these plans. So Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And if you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So he suggests to make some tents, that a tabernacle is just a tent to lean to. And if they make tents, it means they're going to stick around for a while. So, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. Luke adds in nine, chapter 9, verse 33 of Luke, he says that Peter says this, not knowing what he said. Like, so later on, as the disciples share this story with each other, Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. He just doesn't get it. So first of all, this is like almost comically funny. Like he's seeing the culmination of the entire Old Testament right before his eyes, the revelation of God manifested as Jesus Christ, emanating power and light, talking with those that are de dead and those that have been caught up. And he says, let me build some tents. Like he's just not getting what's happening. He's missing the Holy Spirit entirely. It's totally out of place. Like, this isn't the thing. It's out of purpose. It's not what God's trying to do with Peter and Luke, John and, and James right now. 
and it puts Jesus at the same level as Moses and Elijah. Remember he asked them, who do, you think, who do the people think I am? And they said, well, we, they think maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're one of the prophets. And then what they got right, what he praised them for is they said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then in this instance, let me build three tents for you, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He kind of levels them at the same level again. So he's missing that piece of it. And, and Matt, Matthew kind of lets us put all this together, which shows, again, as a writer, Matthew doesn't really ever take shots at Peter. And he tells the stories, but the other gospel writers sometimes express Peter as with a little more like Luke says, like he doesn't know what he was talking about. And Matthew just shows a lot of grace for Peter. There's a deep respect there because he never says that. He lets us come to our own conclusion around that. Uh, but, and then, the, then another thing is, once again, instead of following Jesus, which would be to sit there quietly and wait for Jesus to say something to you, right? We used to say that to kids, be seen and not heard, right? Or as, as, as Gandalf said to Pippin, do not mention Frodo or the ring or say anything to Ar about Aragorn either. In fact, it's better if you don't speak at all, Peregrine took. Remember when he's going into the I remember when I was in college, I got the honor of going with my professor to a philosophy conference, and what, the keynote speaker there was Alvin Plantinga. And if you don't know who Alvin Plantinga is, that's okay. Uh, but he was a, a, a world-renowned philosopher in Christian philosophy, and it was a pretty big honor, and we were going to go out to eat because Mel used to be his grad student. So we, I get to go out with it, to eat with somebody who's, who I've, I've read his books, I've done this. There's definitely this honor situation there. And as we're going in to eat, Mel, Professor Stewart just turns to me and says, now, Sean, don't say anything. <laughs> like, if you open your mouth, you're just going to make a fool of yourself. So if he addresses you, you answer his question directly. If he does not address you, you eat your food and you will gain honor and respect by keeping your mouth shut. So I sat there for an hour, and at one point, the, he drooled a little while he ate, and I just kept watching the drool. I was distracted. Maybe it's ADHD, I don't know, but I, I, it was beyond me what they were talking about. He was right. And then he turns to me and he goes, so, you're a student of Mel's. Yes, I am. Hmm. And then he forgot about me the rest of the meal. That was the whole thing. That was the, I just said, yes, I am. And that's the whole conversation. And we got done, and Mel was so proud. He was like, Sean, that was, you did great. He really regards you. And if you want to go to Oxford and study under him, he said he would have you study under him. And I was like, wow, that's wonderful. Like, he knows nothing about it. I never went to Oxford to study under Alvin Plantinga. But the idea was sometimes to be a good steward, to be a good servant, sometimes you listen. And when Peter comes in and going, Peter answers when there wasn't ever a question, and he says to Jesus, instead of listening to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. So I don't know who the us is. Maybe the us is him and James and John, like, thanks for letting us come to this cool dinner with you. But it could just be that Peter's saying, Let, thanks for all six of us to be here together. It's good that we're all hanging out. And how arrogant is Peter to put himself at the same level as Mo Moses and Elijah? And it's in Peter's humility that today you could actually say he's in that category. So are James and John. But in this moment, he wasn't in that category. In this moment, his job was to sit there, be quiet, and watch the drool. Skip the drool part. Lord, it's good for us to be here. It's just 
almost like Peter's too nervous. Like he can't, just can't keep his mouth shut. If you wish, let us. I love that. I love the idea that he's at, he's at least allowing Jesus's will here, but he's also getting ahead of Jesus again. Instead of waiting for Jesus to say, build us some tents and then saying, yes, sir, we're on it. He's just like, maybe we should be building tents. And in volunteering this work, I think Peter thinks he's offering a good thing. Like, don't you, like, Peter thinks, oh, this, this is what we got to do. And he's laying it out like it's this great thing, but he's presuming, and he's also presuming that James and John will help him build the tents. I just like that too. It's not just Peter presuming his own labor. He's presuming the labor of his brothers in Christ too, which that's, again, Peter presuming things. So he dreams this up. It's very petty compared to what God actually wants to do. And the making of these tabernacles is, is again, I'll come back to that idea, is making Jesus equal with the lawgiver and the prophet. I mean, Moses is often the giver of the law, and Elijah's the prophet to the Jews of the first century. But Jesus is so much more than the law and the prophets. He's so much more. Um, so Peter adds this and does this, and he, and he speaks without thinking, according to Luke. He doesn't know what he's saying. So he should just be keeping it quiet. Dave Gusick says this, We often think we need to lead in our relationship with Jesus, but in truth, it's Jesus who calls us, and then we come. He calls, he draws, and we follow. And I, I want to read a couple other verses on this because it's such a key point. And again, as we go through Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount's easy because that's just like the, how it works, right? Blessed are the, the brokenhearted. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're like, oh yeah, I'm there, I'm there. But as you go through Matthew, he's talking to more and more mature disciples. And this message of staying behind Jesus instead of getting out in front of him is a very complex idea that I think for as mature believers, we got to watch out for this. Jesus calls, we come. That's the relationship. Matthew 8, 9. For I am under a, I am also, this is the, the Roman centurion. I'm also under a man of authority. I have soldiers under me and I say to this one, go and he goes. I say to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. And Jesus applauds the centurion. That's how this works. I say, come and you come. I say, go and you go. I say, do this, you do this. Matthew 8, 9. Uh, um, or I'm sorry, that was the one I just read. So Jesus draws people in. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It, it seems to be a point for Jesus to say, I'm in charge. And that's not like he's a power monger or he needs to be in charge. It's because he's actually God. And his being gives him the authority to say those kinds of things. So God interrupts Peter again. In the same way that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, God just interrupts. And look at the language in verse 5. While he was still speaking. So Peter couldn't even finish his sentence. This is complete interruption, right? Because it's just not going to be uttered in the presence of a transfigured Jesus. And so while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Or in the Hebrew, that's shut up Peter and listen. Like you're not here to do, to suggest things. You're here to just come hear the words of God. I'm glad that that amuses you, Karen. The bright cloud is not new. We saw it in the Old Testament again and again and again. That's the Shekinah glory of God. It sat over the temple. It, re it is the way that God would show people that he was with them. So when God, when they see a bright cloud, 
We don't see those today. We see clouds that maybe bounce a little sunlight off them, but this is a cloud that emanates light from within. That's a different kind of cloud than what we see in the skies, and, and it's, it's, it's very clear in the Old Testament that this is, looks like that. It is the raw power of God veiled so that people can see something and recognize God's there. It says, this is my beloved son. It doesn't say sons. He's not talking about Moses and Elijah. He's singling Jesus out. And the mistake Peter made is that he didn't single Jesus out. To think of him like a prophet or equal to prophet is actually bad theology. God says, this is my beloved son, singular. This is my beloved son is a phrase that got used in Psalm 2-7. Um, it, 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 to say that I am pleased in him was said in Isaiah 42-1. What's new here is the idea of hear him. And that's not entirely new because this is Moses who's standing right there wrote in Deuteronomy 18:15 the Lord your God will raise you up for will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst from your brethren and you shall hear him so God promises Moses that there's going to be somebody that looks more like God that shows up and you shall hear him so if we're repeating God's word what God says here out of the cloud is actually just repeating the old testament like, if God's word is good enough for him to say to people, it's good enough for us to say to people. We don't have to invent our own words. We just have to repeat what we read. It's wonderful. Hear him. God is without any confusion here. He's telling Peter to listen to Jesus. So first Jesus needs to get behind Jesus, and then he needs to listen to Jesus. Jesus' words then are God's words, and Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And so when the disciples hear it in verse 6... They fall on their faces and they're greatly afraid. This is the natural, I think, extremely reasonable reaction to the power of an almighty God. We see it throughout the Old Testament. When God reveals himself with any degree, people fall on their faces and just put themselves in a truthful position underneath God's power. If God holds our atoms together, if God flings apart the galaxies... The voice of God is like an earthquake that would shatter or rattle our atoms in our body. Like we would just feel it in our bones. We'd feel it in every cell because that's the voice that made us. So that the idea that people would just fall on their faces is like they almost lost complete control of their, their muscles. Like they just collapse. We, when we don't, we don't fall on our faces, we fall on our hands. We fall on our knees. But when you're in before the power of God, they literally fall directly on their face. And, and, and again, the Greek's very specific there. So to fall on your face is to not have control of yourself, right? And that's, this idea is they don't fall when they see a transfigured Jesus. They don't fall when they see the robes shining. They don't sigh when they see the tourist Moses. They don't fall when they see Elijah or even the bright cloud. But the voice of God causes them to, to absolutely collapse. The only thing I can think of that's close to this was my grandpa. We'd be doodling around. We're kids. We're doing stupid things. We didn't notice that grandpa came out into the backyard. Gets real close before we even see him because we're so consumed with our nonsense. And then he steps up and he goes, knock it off. And you just hear it. And I, I'm guessing that's nothing close to the voice of God. But everything that we were doing, I think we were playing with fireworks and like shooting them into the outhouse pit or something like that. But everything we were doing like 
immediately fell out of relevance because A, we were caught, B, the voice of one in authority spoke, and it was the voice of someone we deeply loved. We cared. Grandpa's opinion of us mattered. And to hear that voice of just knock it off, we were like, oh, it's horrifying. Oh, we're so sorry. And I think that's the reaction the disciples have here. They were greatly afraid. And that's not a fear of like a boogeyman. There's a fear. What we fear is when we, we fear what we worship. And if you risk, if something you worship is about to be lost, that's where fear comes from. So in a negative sense, we could fall in love with our truck. And then the truck gets in an accident and you fear that accident. You fear the day that your truck doesn't start. And you fear the things you worship. It's even more important when we worship God. The thought of losing the love of God exudes a deep fear that the possible negative outcome is the thing you fear. And that even applies to like horror movies. What we're scared of in the movie is what we imagine the negative outcome to be for our character. So that idea that we fear the things that we imagine, but we, we fear the loss of things we worship or we value or we love. So to hear this voice from heaven and to be greatly afraid means they were being reprimanded. Knock it off. And here, here's the thing with this. Building tents for somebody is kind of, at, at a face value in the flesh, that's, super, that's a really nice thing to do. There's nothing wrong with building tents for people. Peter's feelings backed it up. He felt it was a good thing to do. So in his heart, he's acting out of this good emotion. He's thinking what he's doing is the right thing to do. But he's not following God when he does this. And when the real voice of God shows up, he knows he's being reprimanded because he knows he was stepping over the bounds. But Jesus came and he touched them. This is so great. Under the power of God, in the face of the law and the prophets, there's this reprimand and they're on their faces knowing they've done wrong. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and don't be afraid. Wow. So first God says, knock it off. And then God comes and says, arise, don't be afraid. This is a loving, heavenly Father in the form of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The power and the justice of God is terrifying. But to look up and see Jesus, even Jesus on the cross, that's the only hope we have. Like, we're doomed under the law and the prophets. We're doomed under the reprimand of God. Even when we think we're doing good things, we're still just doing stuff because we want to make ourselves happy. But that looking up, see Jesus on the cross. Mm, Micah 7.8 Don't rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Prophecy fulfilled. So the law and the prophets disappear. The Shekinah glory disappears. It's like God's exiting Moses. He's exiting Elijah. He's exiting the Shekinah glory. There's a new revelation that starts with Jesus. And it's not different from the Old Testament. It's the next chapter of the Old Testament. And Matthew serves as that hinge book between the two. This shows us why Jesus was transfigured. It was to cement their trust in him and him alone but they could see the power of God behind him. When we turn to Jesus and we trust to him no matter what, we do it knowing he's the Messiah. We don't do it guessing that he's the Messiah. Why would you follow someone that's maybe a Messiah? 
We do it because he's the risen Lord of God and he proved it in his resurrection. So like God the Father cites the word, so does Jesus. He does the same thing. We've heard do not be afraid before, haven't we? The nice part is that Sunday nights we're doing the Old Testament and you can really see these connections. Joshua 8.1, now the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Jeremiah 1.17, the prophets, therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them that I command you. Don't be dismayed before their faces. Don't be afraid. That courage gets rooted in our understanding of God, not in our own efforts or works. It's such a core theological belief in the Christian faith. It's so easy to miss because our first instinct when we love Jesus is to want to build him a tent. But it's not what God wants of us. He wants us to follow him. And we lose that first love of our salvation when we start building tents instead of just bowing down before the Lord and listening to his word. The, it, it's everything about letting go of the flesh and grabbing onto the Spirit. And this lesson comes in here. Now, as they came down from the mountain, this is a mountaintop experience, <laughs> Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to nobody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You're the only ones that get to see this. We all have to just trust in the resurrection from the dead. But these three guys, they got to see it even before it, it, it happened. So Jesus asks them to restrain themselves. Instead of building tents, he wants them to keep their tongues. Chapter 16 talks that to follow Jesus is to boldly speak. And, and, and in this chapter, they're told to boldly wait. So they're supposed to speak when they're told, chapter 16. They're supposed to not speak when they're told, chapter 17. And these two things actually go together. Both of these things can really tick off non-believers. Saying things they don't want to hear or not saying things when they do want to hear things. Well, prove this to me. Nah, I don't want to. <laughs> that can really aggravate people. Tell this vision to nobody. Uh, Grant, this one's for you. This is the first command to not watch television. Tell the vision to no one. Did you get that? Okay. Verse 10. Did Mike get that one? Because that was kind of for him too. And his disciples asked him, verse 10, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered them and said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first, and he will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him but to do whatever they wished. Or they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So it says that, they know that, that they, they know that there must be Elijah first. The place they're getting that from is Malachi 4.5, if you want to do a little cross-reference. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful, dreadful day of the Lord. So they take that prophecy seriously, as we should take prophecy seriously. Um, and so when they're saying, well, how are you the Messiah if, if Malachi 4.5 says... So the interesting thing is that's one sentence out of the entire Old Testament but if God's word is true, then every word of it's true. And the way they treated the word of God is that one sentence was a sticking point for them to believe he was the Messiah. We got to deal with this. Please explain this verse to us because we got to understand how it all fits, not just pieces of it. So in asking that, they're doing it. Um, Jesus' answer, of course, is 
they just saw Elijah. The weird thing, too, is they just saw Elijah. So this is coming after the transfiguration story. So the perspective here can kind of be weird for him because there's, why did Elijah show up now and you showed up before Elijah did? Like, that seems weird. So Jesus pointing to the John the Baptist helps answer the question. In the, in the Hebrew then, when it says, why then, uh, it's actually outside of tense. So as prophecy happens with Micah, and often in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, there aren't tenses with it. So when it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, uh, Jesus interprets that as having multiple tenses. So let me walk you through that. It says, Elijah is coming first, is what the disciples say. That's the future tense. Jesus says, Elijah has come already, and he says it in the past tense. So you don't know, Jesus, he's already come. He did come. He will come. Uh, Elijah already came in the Old Testament. Jesus in the New Testament. Elijah's, he, Elijah's spirit and power uh, is coming in John the Baptist, this idea of repent, repent, repent. So the same message that Elijah had is one that John the Baptist has. And the great and dreadful day of the Lord is likely the judgment. So Elijah should come before the second coming of Christ also. So in some senses, like, this is still kind of a mystery today because we don't know it. This is why in Revelation 11, 3 through 13, a lot of people believe one of the two witnesses will be Elijah because uh, it says, I'll give power unto my witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. So when Revelation says that, people also understand that Elijah might come before the second coming too. Verse 13 says the disciples understood. They get it now. They don't ask for further explanation. Um, Jesus isn't exasperated this time. I think that's interesting too. In Matthew 15, 16, and again in 16, they would ask him questions and he would say things like, don't you understand yet? Don't you get this? But this question about Elijah isn't questioning Jesus' authority, his, his role as son of man, his messiahship. They're actually just trying to unpack these little catch-ups in the Old Testament. And in that, Jesus, I don't, I, we don't see that reprimand because they're act actually asking the right kinds of questions. So they walk back to the crowds. They're coming down from the mountaintop. And immediately after they come back from the crowds, he's, there's going to be a trial or a test, as is common with the Christian life. Verse 14 starts with the word and, connecting these two stories. The transfigurations, this moment where they see with clarity, and now they got this situation where the disciples are not getting it again. And when they'd come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long should I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, probably the one they just came down from, Move it from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This is a really interesting situation. I want to make sure we keep in mind that this is connected to the transfiguration. These stories are kind of balancing each other out. The word epileptic in verse 15, we got to deal with that. Selainiadzome. Uh, literally, the word means moonstruck. 
or that was a way, it was like a slang term they would use for a lunatic or somebody that was kind of crazy. So today we read that word and, oh, you're a very good person. Today we read that word and um, it's a, we think of it as a medical term, like an epileptic seizure. The reality is this is kind of a horrible translation, at least in mind. You might not have epilepsy there in verse 15. I do. Um, a, a better translation of it would be a lunatic or a crazy person, or that there's a, a demon that's causing this person to do things that are outside of their control. Um, they, all, elsewhere in the Gospels, they actually use epileptic in the same sentence as, or a list where demon-possessed is there too. So they know in the first century that those two things aren't the same, and the word they use here is not the, really the same situation. So this person's out of their control. The rest of 15 kind of clarifies that. They fall into the fire, they fall into the water, two things that we don't tend to do on our own actions. So they got to kind of keep this person from hurting themselves. Uh, we see this happen today. That It's really a sad situation that we do have people that, that lose control and, and they're in those situations. So they go from the mountaintop to the valley. Um, a lot like when Moses came down from the mountaintop and he saw them all worshiping the golden calf. Jesus comes down from the mountaintop and they're all doubting their ability to, to say things in Jesus' name. So he's confused um, and the disciples are discouraged. They're confused. Uh, they can't cast it out and, uh, and they ask why we can't do it. Uh, Jesus' answer on this is interesting and it leads to a lot of, I think, branches of the faith that get a little nuts about this thing. When, they, when he says you couldn't cure him because of your unbelief, that's not saying that our degree of belief is always the case when we ask things or pray for things. So to con conflate that out to the entire faith is to ignore other teachings on prayer altogether. And I'm thinking of like the name it and claim it people. If you just have enough faith, you can heal your body of disease. Yet everyone who has said that in the past has failed to stop themselves from dying. Right? And, and one irony we got today was somebody that was... Uh, one of the pastors at the men's conference was saying, like, he had some seizures and somebody came up just saying, well, you just got to have enough faith to stop your seizures. And how hurtful and damaging that is. What a horrible thing to say. And then he picked up on the irony of the fact that she was wearing eyeglasses. So it just like, well, if, you, if you have that much faith, why don't you fix your eyes? Um, so it doesn't work that way. This is specifically a situation with an individual. You could not cure him. He doesn't generalize it. Jesus is a smart guy. He would generalize it if he meant to. But in this particular situation, especially when you see crazy people violently hurting themselves, that's a really shocking situation to be in as a disciple. And it can be really scary when you encounter that. So the bluster and flurry of the demonically possessed person can stumble us from seeing things clearly. A lot like the wind stumbled Peter when he tried to walk on water. Right? When you focus on the Lord, when you keep your eyes on Jesus, all other things should go away, not just Elijah, Moses, and the Shekinah glory, but everything else goes away in terms of demon-possessed people too. And what they're doing is they're getting confused by it. In verse 17, he then generalizes, O faithless and perverse generation, how long do I have to be with you? <laughs> like, I'm, you know, we have teachers in the room. Sometimes you think, how long till the end of the school year? Like, really? How long? It's not that you don't love the kids. It's that you're just tired. Like, it's, you're getting wore out. And, and to see Jesus expressing that kind of humanity, uh, 
endears me to Jesus. I, I read that and I think, I love this guy. I relate to this guy. He's very human at the same time as just coming down from a transfigured state. How long shall I bear with you? That's a question of like, judgment is coming. At some point, God's done with us. And that question is one that should, you know, not necessarily like give us a sense of, okay, I don't ever want to be a burden to God. In his mercy, he says, bring him here. He heals him. He rebukes the demon and it comes out. It's The way that's worded, it's almost like it came out super easy. Like it, it was just, you know, Jewish exorcisms were these big elaborate rituals. They took entire days, weeks. They had fancy prayers, everything else. Jesus just says, get out of him and he gets out. And it's just boom. And then he backs it up with his words. God's power is totally in control. The miracle here is that God's power is held back where we don't see it. And if we're people of faith, we realize when we pray for things, it's like popping a pin, pin into a water balloon. Like what's coming out, that little stream of water, that's such a small amount of what's behind that stream of water. The pressure of God's love is ready to be unleashed on people. And the way he's looking at this is you're focused on the demon-possessed guy. You should be focused on the power of God. And the power of God is so much greater than that. So he asks his disciples in verse 19, what's up? Why is this? Why, they, they, why couldn't we cast this out? And so if you have the faith of a mustard seed, he just reminds them of how small their faith has to be. You don't need much faith. You can be a day one believer and start doing these things. That power that God's released is released immediately to his disciples. If you have faith as a mustard seed, it's all conditioned on the word faith. If we have faith and we've just gotten these lessons, again, this is tied to the transfiguration. It's immediately after the rebuke of Peter. If you're getting out in front trying to build tents, you can't get anything done. But if you follow Jesus and do the will of God on earth, then mountains can move. So that word faith in there, I think, is part of why I have a problem with prosperity gospel or the name it and claim it people. Because my job as a believer is to follow Jesus, stay right behind him, and when I ask for things in prayer, I ask for what God wants. And then it gets unlocked, and nothing will be impossible for you because the power of God has no limits. So they can't even stand up in the face of God and they need to realize that same power can help this person that's demon-possessed. When we follow Jesus, we're in his will, we're in his command. It's not, about, it's not about the degree of faith. It's about who our faith is in. And that I think that distinction is a pretty important one. So, and then at the very end, verse 21, he says, this kind. That's kind of a mercy because Jesus gives him this teaching, and then at the end, he's like, this kind comes out with prayer and fasting. That's an important concept. That implies a lot of things about the spiritual world, that there are some spirits that take different battle tactics. Like, that's an interesting kind of conversation to have. And as believers, I think that's one we should be spending our time thinking about. So both prayer and fasting, there's an implication that usually it's going to take faith over time, because fasting is something that happens over time. And to get this kind of demon out usually takes that kind of pressure. So verse 20, we keep our eyes on Jesus, kind of reflects verse chapter 14, getting our face on Jesus versus the wind. We have a belief in his power, verse chapter 15 with the Gentiles showed us that. 
and we're, here we have faith for others or that intercession. Then we get the trusting the Messiah as Savior, chapter 16. Faith focuses on the things of God. So I'm going to say that one more time. Chapter 14, faith is in the face of all the distractions. Chapter 15, faith is, is for other people, or we saw that Gentile that did the intercession. Then in chapter 16, we learn another thing about faith. Faith focuses on the things of God. And here, I think there's a really complex idea. Now we see faith over time. Faith is something that should inspire us to do prayer and fasting because that's the way God tells us to unlock things. So this is the idea of faith being something that gets matured into a consistent and disciplined practice. It's how we live. So if, if we are thinking of military terms or, or, or images, we're about occupying territory with a dependence on our king and the power that's behind us, right? So a number of other thoughts on prayer and fasting then come together. Prayer and fasting shows that we care enough to sacrifice stuff for ourselves for the petitions and prayers we're making, especially if we pray for other people. Prayer and fasting identifies that we're suffering a little bit ourselves because we want to identify with the person we're praying for. Prayer and fasting requires a, a lifestyle change or a discipline and a focus. So these are tough. And, and again, I, I like to say the other side of the coin. There are people that really mix up fasting and they make it into a religion. And that you have to fast. I ran into a, we were at a men's retreat this weekend. And the, the men's retreat, they serve brisket. It's beautiful brisket. It, it looks good and it tastes good. And it's delicious. And I talked to one guy who's not in line, and I'm like, why are you not eating? He's, well, I'm fasting right now. And I got to tell you, I'm not judging him. It's between him and God, and maybe God wants him to not eat that brisket. But I'm thinking to myself, what came to my head was Jesus going, why are you fasting when the bridegroom is with you? Like, that's why my disciples don't fast, is they're with me. But if you're there at a men's retreat to celebrate the glory of God, and there's a feast in front of you, eat and feast and be merry and but there's people that turn fasting into something where it's just this kind of thing. And again, I, I, I know this guy, and I think he's an awesome man of God, and why he's doing it is none of my business. But there's a thing where I, there are people that turn fasting into this weird practice, and it's done in supplication or prayer for something in this instance. Um, and it is a practice. It's a tool we have. It's a discipline that we can use when we're appealing for things for other people or interceding for other people. At least this is an example of that happening. Um, but it's also not something that Jesus obligates or demands of his servants in the same way that the law might demand they wash their hands before they do sacrifices. Right? It's not that kind of a thing. And we don't see that it's commanded in that kind of way. So it's not an obligation. And there's people that feel guilty because they don't fast enough or they struggle with it. I don't think it's something for Christians to get guilty about either. Uh, it's something that Jesus calls people to. So then, then we kind of, he again tells them about his death and resurrection. Verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So didn't Matthew just say this back in chapter 16? Like it's the, almost the exact same thing. What's different this time? is that they feel sorrowful instead of arguing with him about it. This time, they just follow. I think this is really cool. Also, when we see the same thing happen almost a chapter apart, you have to ask the chiasm question. Is there a chiasm here? And there is, so get ready for this. If you look at verse 22, 23 of this chapter, and then you, you um, 
you scale it back to chapter 16, verse 16. From that time, Jesus began to, to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things from the elders, the chief tribes and scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. So you have two instances here in verse 17, 22, and back in 16, 16, or 16, verse 21, that these two things kind of parallel each other. And then you have to ask, okay, what's going in? So chiasm is like a big sandwich. And you've got bread on either side, and the bread is about the same. And when you get inside, you start to see what the sandwich is built of. And right in the middle, there's usually something that's the point of the whole thing. So I want to kind of go through that. So this idea of um, have faith, get behind me, comes right after that sentence in chapter 16. Then the transfiguration's revealed. And then they can't heal a boy, which is about having faith. Don't get behind Jesus. So, and then Jesus again teaches about his death and resurrection. So these stories all kind of go together. Death and resurrection, bread in the sandwich. On either side is a have faith, don't get ahead of Jesus, don't get behind Jesus. Like, and then in the middle is Jesus revealed and transfigured. And so you have this image where all of this is centered around this idea. And this time the disciples accept it. So the first part of the sandwich, they don't get stuff. Second part of the sandwich, they're getting stuff and they figure it out. And so you see these connections, this growth in the disciples that happens here. They go from having faith in themselves to having this baby faith where they got to understand how to do this situation better. And on either side of the story of death and resurrection, you have these aggressive traps from the Pharisees on either side. The first trap of the Pharisees we saw back in 16. Now we get to another trap of the Pharisees. When they'd come to Capernaum, verse 24, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Why, does your, teacher, does your teacher, teacher not pay the temple tax? So they're trying to get him again. I don't know if this is intentional or inspired that Matthew writes like this. I, the naturalistic part of me says, I think Matthew's just a really smart guy. And he's structuring this in such a way to put the transfiguration of Jesus at the middle of these other pieces. Um, you know, it's amazing to me if you start, if you keep building this out, I won't go too far with this, but it's interesting because it kind of continues out from this transfiguration. And you could argue that the entire book of Matthew, you got to stretch a little bit, but the entire book of Matthew centers on the transfiguration of Christ. Everything from here on goes towards crucifixion, resurrection. So these miracles that you have back in chapter 14, Peter walks on water, but in chapter 16, he says, you are the Christ. Peter loses his focus and falls in the water. And in verse chapter 16, 23, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and he, and he falters in his faith. And those images are on either side of the sandwich. They, they all reach out to Jesus when things aren't working, just like Peter does. He says, save us. And and, and, he, and, and, and at this point, he's basically saying, come unto me. Um, and in, in this sense, Jesus does the same thing in the transfiguration. Uh, he immediately spoke to them saying, be of good cheer. It's I, don't be afraid. So we see these situations can kind of pop up in a, in a pattern with Matthew. Um, and again, I, I won't get too far into it because it's, it's for the math geeks. Um, but there is definitely a structure and pattern to Matthew that builds out. And we have these parallel stories on either side. So we're on the other side of that, past the transfiguration. And then you get these Pharisees. This time, they're questioning the temple tax. They go to, they go to uh, Peter. They don't go to Jesus with it. 
um, the temple tax is levied on every Jewish man. It's, we also know the dating on this because of this. The Pharisees would run around getting temple taxes about a month before Passover, which tells us we're about a month before that particular feast right now. And what they would do is every man of age had to pay a tax to the temple. This was outside of the Roman stuff. This was the church passing the plate. This literally was, it's, we, got a, we got a thermostat on the wall and we're going to fill it in with a little red marker and we got to get to this amount because we got these things we're going to do. And so they'd run around collecting money from people and there was this amount that every guy was supposed to pay. Here's the problem. Um, <laughs> uh, Jesus kind of falters in this situation because he in verse 25, he says, yes. Like that's all Peter says. Like he doesn't really get there. He kind of walks away from him like Jesus did back in chapter 16, verse 4. Um, so Peter's not engaging with them at this point. Um, that said, he's answering a negative with a positive. So this is a confusing sentence, right? Because they say, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter says, yes. So yes, he does not pay the temple tax is what he's saying there. Um, I, I don't know if that's, I, I, what, whatever it is, Peter's leaving this interaction fairly discouraged. And it's got to be hard because you just saw Jesus transfigured and then you're dealing with these petty Pharisees that really are just at a different level of ridiculousness. And Peter, I think, is just, man, I want this church to happen. I want this kingdom to happen. I just want it to grow. I want it to move faster than it should. And then he's still got to deal with these people. And he's probably irritated. We know Peter has a temper, so his sense of justice is mad because he's probably walking home thinking to himself, why would you expect the Son of God to pay a tax to you? Right? We don't ask, I don't tax Grant for living in my house. He's my son. And that's exactly what Jesus anticipates him in, the, in this verse. And he had, it's like he could read Peter's mind. But imagine Peter just walking home going, man, this is stupid. And Jesus says, and when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? He doesn't use Peter right now. He's correcting him. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take their customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter says, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. I love this. It's like Peter's saying, you know what, Peter, we're free from that. You're right. You're right to be mad. These people are aggravating and they're horrible and he gives them this confirming senses of just like you're right Peter I shouldn't I'm the son of God I shouldn't be paying this tax I think this is wonderful in fact it would be wrong for him to pay the tax because it would be almost like testifying that he's not the son of God so I'm sure Peter's working through all of these thoughts so Jesus associates the Jewish temple as earth that we turn away from 16 14 and then Jesus established a new religious thing called the church, chapter 16, 18. And now they are strangers being asked to pay a tax to this organization that they're not really part of anymore. So I like that Jesus validates Peter here in saying the sons are free. So in some sense, as they've been grafted in as part of this church, they should be paying their tithe to the church, not to the synagogue. This is a massive, like, shift for them, right? Nevertheless, 27, Jesus teaches with nevertheless. You're right, but it doesn't matter that you're right. Nevertheless, 
just pay the tax. It's not a big deal. It's not heavenly. And actually, Peter, we want to be strangers to those people. We don't want to be on their side. So if we, let's just pay the tax and be strangers to them because we've broken ties with the synagogue. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. This is so graceful. Think of what Jesus just did here. There's redemption here. So yes, there's money. That's great. But the money comes right from heaven. Well, because fish don't produce coins. just want to make that clear. How did the coin get in the fish? Like, that's a story, like a children's story. You know, I don't be a cute little book. But anyways, it's wrong for Jesus to pay them tax himself, but the fish gets him off the hook. In grace... Jesus takes this aggravation and frustration that Peter's walking in with and he just erases it. And it's so graceful. Peter can just keep his eyes on Jesus and not worry about the world, even in terms of ridiculous things like temple taxes. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. The lest we offend them there, it's the root word for scandal, scandalisa. Lest we make a scandal. Let's just take, like, let's not get into it with these people. Why would we dignify them with a stupid debate about temple taxes? Give them their stupid coin. So we do our duty. He shows, Jesus shows Peter to do his duty, go beyond his duty, and he reminds Peter that your resources aren't from you anyways. I provide you everything. The casting in the hook, just to point this out, Peter was a professional fisherman. Like, right? He had tools. He had a boat. They're back in Galilee. It was probably within walking distance. He, he would use nets. So professional fishermen would cast a net into the ocean and draw a fish out. Think of how humiliating. Think of if his fisherman friends saw him there fishing with a line and a hook. Like he would have been full on laughed at. What are you doing, Peter? You know how to catch fish. So the fact that Jesus like, this is like having Billy Graham come to your church and then you say, well, can you do the morning Sunday school session? Because we really, I'll cover the Sunday morning teaching, right? Like, Peter, go catch a fish with a, with a hook. And Matthew makes the point of it, like cast a hook and take the fish that comes up first. So he's catching one fish. I think this is important because after you see Jesus transfigured, you're excited about it. Faith like a mustard seed can move. You can, if you ask this, you can move a mountain. And then the next command is cast a cast a humble, stupid fishing line into the water and sit there and wait until something bites. How humiliating. As humans, we like the grandiose. I want to start moving mountains. And Peter's told to just cast, a, cast one line into the water until one fish bites it. That's all you got to do. There's a humility in that behavior that's beautiful. Then give it to them for me and you. I love this. Some read this as you, you, you pay whatever the world asks for, right? That's one way to read this. It, it's a valid way to look at this passage. I like seeing this is that Jesus allows Peter not only to pay for Peter's tax, but Jesus covers it too, avoiding any anger for Peter himself because the whole situation was if Jesus paid the tax. So not only does Jesus pay his own tax with a fish's, actually the fish paid for Jesus' tax, but he also covers Peter's. Like, I don't even want you to, be, like, I'll take care of you too. And Jesus avoids the falseness of him paying a tax to himself 
but it still gets taken care of, so there's no scandal. And it, it reminded me of Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. It's really simple. Just let it go. Think how far we've come since ch chapter 16, verse 1. We now have a church. We got leadership for the church. We got to focus on Jesus as God. We've got a power behind the church that's immense. And Jesus is throwing a fish in the water, or throwing a line in the water. Like, there's such a trajectory, such an arc here that it, just the raw literature of it is just beautiful. And finally, <laughs> Jesus pays the price for Peter. <laughs> like, he's just got done talking about crucifixion, death, and resurrection, atonement, sin, under the law of Moses, predicted by the prophets. I'm going to pay your tax. And the image of this sets us up for crucifixion. And one way to read this is, yeah, whatever, pay taxes. Another way to read this is, Jesus will, if we do what he commands us to do, he'll cover it for us. And it's an image, I think, of salvation, right? I'll read it again. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in the hook, take the fish that comes up first when you've opened its mouth, very text, like, follow my instruction. You'll find a piece of money. You take that and give it to them for me and you. This is going to pay your tax. It's going to pay your bill. Everything is ugly up until you find the money. Fishes are ugly. I'm not a big fan of salt water. The hook is sharp and probably has muck on it, maybe a worm. Everything about this is earthly and fleshy until the prize shows up. And that prize is direct from God. Our lives look a lot like chat verse 27. Everything about our life is mundane. It's typical. And in humility, we accept that. But at the end, there's a coin to be found. There's a prize. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. And you, you sell everything to get it. And that pearl comes by obeying and following God step by step, point by point, like a paint by numbers. You do it right, and at the end, there's a beautiful picture to be found. You do it right, your debt is paid. You do it right, God pays your debt for you. You don't even have to worry about it. Amen? Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, it'd be cool to see you transfigured, um, but I also realize the power that's behind that. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that we can approach and know the same things the disciples knew. We can learn what you taught to them. Uh, and Lord, mercifully, not under the power of your might. Like we, we need Jesus to intercede for us. Like we know the rebuke from God is real and deserved. Uh, and Lord, we just humbly come before you and we fall on our faces spiritually, Lord, before you. Lord, there is nothing that we can do that we can, that we can anticipate, that we can serve you with that's of any worth outside of just following your command. Lord, we thank you for your gift of your son, the gift of the sacrifice of, of your son, your only begotten son, uh, sacrificed to pay a debt that we owe. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for that. What a gift. We lift your name up in all glory and all reverence, Lord. Help us to know that you are not just a transfigured Jesus, but you are God himself. You are manifest, Lord. And we thank you for revealing these things to us, Lord, that you sought us and you called us to come. So help us to just return by following and coming. Lord, we just ask you to bless our days, bless our week. I just pray you, uh, um, your spirit is with us as we move forward and walks forward in Jesus' name. Thank you.
you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.